You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Man, everybody here for show five. Five seventy six. Yeah. Super podcast. Uh, Super America. The Outdoor Sports Podcast. It is Monday, August 29th, two thousand twenty-two. People. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. I hope everybody is ready for the first time since January to react to some on-the-field college football news. That is right. We had games on Saturday, and we got a loaded episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast for you. We are going to open, obviously, you already know, Northwestern, Nebraska, in Dublin, Nebraska essentially a must-win game for Scott Frost. Of course, he loses it in the most Nebraska way possible. We talk about that. The ramifications for Nebraska and what happens if this job does in fact open up. I think we're going to find out pretty soon, probably within the next six weeks, if it will. From there, we will kind of switch the conversation, react to the rest of Week 0. Some interesting results. We're not going to overdo it, but Florida State, I thought, looked really good. Remember, they play LSU this coming Sunday at the Superdome. Uh, Very quickly, my UConn Huskies. I promise not to make this a UConn Huskies podcast, but I thought they showed well in a loss to a good Utah State team. And finally, we will react to some camp news and notes that came out on Saturday, where Jim Harbaugh made a very interesting decision on his quarterback battle. Texas A&M names their starter, so we're getting there. Week one is coming, but today is really about reacting to what we saw on Saturday. Of course, Wednesday and Friday, we look ahead to week one in college football. Uh, a couple news and you know, not, I don't, listen, I don't need to belabor the point. News and notes, and as far as getting ready for this show, just stay tuned. Big stuff. Wednesday show, Friday show, next week coming off of Labor Day weekend. We'll have some big announcements on Friday show, so just stay tuned to that. Cannot wait for the future of this show because uh, it is going to grow in ways that I am really excited about this coming fall. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, well, I don't need, you don't need me to tell you what it is because I know for a fact y'all know what the topic of the day is because I had a bunch of you. Hit me up on Twitter. Torres, cannot wait to hear you react to this Northwestern Nebraska game. And coming into week zero, coming into this game specifically, the biggest game of week zero, we all knew what was at stake for Nebraska, right? 
Obviously, Northwestern, we know who they are. They're coming off a disappointing year. But at the end of the day, Pat Fitzgerald, we appreciate what he's done at Northwestern. It was just two years ago that they played for a Big Ten title and won the Big Ten West. But for Nebraska, it's pretty straightforward. Scott Frost, in year five, needs to start winning games right now. And it really goes back to last year. And I've talked about it a lot on this podcast, so I'm not breaking any new ground. But Nebraska played a bunch of close games against a bunch of really good teams. They simply could get, not get over the hump. I've shared the stat many times. Nine losses by nine points or less, eight losses by a touchdown or less last year. And so in a lot of ways, I give a lot of credit to Nebraska's administration for basically saying, we could tear this thing down and completely start over again, but we are so close. And let's give this guy one more shot Let's give him every resource. Let's allow him to shake up his coaching staff. The NIL money is good in Nebraska, and let's see if he can turn it around. So that was the background going into Saturday. Nebraska has to pull out a win, and they have to start winning these close games that have been losses that have plagued Scott Frost since he got there. Instead, what happens? It was exactly what every other Nebraska game under Scott Frost would look like. Take a lead early, in control, questionable decision, turnovers late, they lose a close game 31-28. to So let's get into the game itself because I do think when you look at this game, there was one specific moment that I think everybody points to, even in the moment. People watching the game pointed to this moment and said, that was where the game turned, Nebraska was in control, then they weren't. That moment came in the middle of the third quarter, really actually early third quarter. Nebraska was up 28-17. to They had just scored on a long touchdown run, 14 unanswered points to open the second half, and Nebraska elects to kick an onside kick. At the time, it was about momentum. Scott Frost said after the game, it was my call, it was my decision, it was, uh, I was the reason that we did it. Uh, they kick it to Northwestern, onside kick, Northwestern recovers it with no problem, and even in that moment, Brock Heward, the announcer for Fox, I thought he did a good job of just saying, I don't know if I would have done that. Uh, You only do an onsides kick if you see a certain look. They kicked it right to one of their best hands team players on Northwestern, and you could feel at the time. This has a chance to be a big momentum-turning situation, and that's exactly what happened. Nebraska was up 28-17. Northwestern scores two minutes later to make it 28-24, and from there, Northwestern scores in the fourth quarter. Nebraska never scores again. Nebraska turns the ball over twice in the fourth quarter, and Northwestern wins 31-28. After the game, it was interesting to kind of see the reaction, not just from fans, but from media in Dublin who were actually asking Scott Frost questions. One, I give Scott Frost credit. He owned it. He said, this was on me. This was my decision. I believed in that moment that if we recovered the onside kick, we would have all the momentum and we would be able to put away Northwestern and be able to win that game going away. And what I want to do, listen, what I want to do now, I don't want to defend Scott Frost for the play, but I, I, you know, I, I do think the narrative on it has been a little bit twisted, and I think that, that onside kick specifically. I do think it's the old Torres saying, we're bringing out all the old sayings uh, here on the, the first college football episode of the Air Torres Sports Podcast, but I do think two things are true about the onside kick. I don't think it's, it was the right play. I do think it was dumb. I can also see why Scott Frost made the decision that he did at the time. And so remember, Nebraska's up 28-17 when he elects to make that onside kick. It's early in the third quarter. They have scored 14 straight points to open the second half. 
And so when Scott Frost made that decision, where I will very quickly defend him, and then we'll get to why it was kind of dumb too, is I, I do understand the headspace that he was in when he made that decision. First of all, as I just said, they, were, they had 28 points on the board, 14 points in the fourth quarter. After that onside kick, they did not score a single point. So I don't think there was ever a scenario in Scott Frost's head where he said, if they recover this onside kick, we're not going to be able to score again to keep kind of putting pressure on them defensively. And to me, that is the second part of this as well. One, when Scott Frost made that decision, I don't think he ever thought, we're not going to score a single point after this game when they had 28 points early in the third quarter. But number two, even then, you could see that the the Nebraska defense was on its heels, something that I would be concerned about going forward, something that we're going to talk about here in a minute, that Nebraska's defense was on their heels and that Northwestern was running the ball right at them. And so I think in Scott Frost's head, two things he was thinking. One, if we recover this and we go up 30, that would be 35 to 17 because they were up 28-17. If we go up 35-17, then they're going to have to pass the ball. They haven't had much success passing the ball. They've done a great job running the ball. But then two, even if they do get the ball back and they score, we can go score for score with them. We're moving the ball all game. So I don't think it was the right decision. I don't think it was as terrible as what everybody says. But what I also can't deny about the situation with Nebraska, with Scott Frost, is that it did, in fact, change momentum in the game. And I think the one thing that sticks out to me, Nebraska, because of all those close losses, it is a very, very, very um, fragile program. It's a program, not just the fans, but I think the players in the locker room, the coaches on the sidelines, I think they kind of expect something bad to happen and are just waiting for it to happen. And so when Scott Frost makes that decision, All of the confidence in that program immediately disappeared, which is exactly what happened. You could see it at that point. The play calling changed, and they have a new offensive coordinator, Mark Whipple, but all of a sudden they're throwing the ball all over the yard as if they're down two touchdowns instead of still up. Casey Thompson, the quarterback, feels a bunch of uh, feel is playing as though he has pressure, and they were never the same after that. And so that is why. I do blame Scott Frost. I don't think it was a terrible call. I do think, by the way, if they recover it and score, it's, oh, new Scott Frost, new era, gutsy, blah, 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 blah. But I also do think the downside of not recovering it is that a program that has been so fragile for so long, he took all the momentum away from them, and I think all of a sudden they're looking around that, that, that sideline waiting for something bad to happen, and when you're waiting for something bad to happen, it generally does, they lose the game. So Nebraska is now 0-1, and as we do so often in college football, I think the immediate reaction becomes what is next, right? Because college football is a reactionary sport, it's why we love it, and I think this is kind of the gift and the curse of playing in week zero, right? You play in week zero, you get the world, you know, everybody's watching you, and if you get the big win, everybody loves you. Today, everybody loves Northwestern. Today, everybody loves Illinois, which destroyed Wyoming. Today, everybody loves Florida State, which, uh, which destroyed Duquesne. The problem is if you lose it, uh, it is very bad. And if you lose it and you're Scott Frost in a make-or-break season when you have to win close games, playing the only Big Ten team and the only Power Five team that you beat last year, now all of a sudden the pressure's ratcheted up and you have people like Aaron Torres on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast talking about you on a Monday episode. Now, with Nebraska going forward, what I would say about Nebraska is I do think there's two very divergent things that could happen going forward. What I would say for Nebraska's sake, the schedule is very manageable going forward. Now, because they played in week zero, 
they actually have two buys this this year, and I think it's very interesting. So they play North Dakota at home next week. They play Georgia Southern at home. They play Oklahoma at home on October uh, on September 17th, and then they actually have a bye into October 1. Why is that important? It is because Scott Frost's buyout as the head coach drops and is cut in half going into October 1st. So keep that in mind because if you're 2-2 two and two coming out of that Oklahoma game and you get embarrassed by Oklahoma, I do think there is a possibility that Scott Frost might not survive to coach Indiana in the next Big Ten game on the schedule. Realistically, though, what I would say is that I do think Scott Frost, just because of the logistics of it, right? One, you're playing an Oklahoma team that's probably going to be in the top 10 when you play them. Two, I don't think they're going to fire him on the day that the buyout drops in half, which would be a Saturday morning. But I will say a couple things. I think if you lose to Indiana on October 1 and you fall to 2 and 3, I think you could be gone. I think certainly if you lose to Rutgers the following week and you whatever it is 2 and 4, 3 and 3, you could be gone. And that is where it's interesting with Scott Frost is that he has a buy going into uh, he has a buy going into that October 1st game, but then there's a second buy later in October after a game on at Purdue on the road. So here is the schedule. They're 0-1. They play North North Dakota, Georgia Southern, Oklahoma, bye. Then they return to the field on October 1st. They play Indiana, Rutgers, and Purdue, the final two on the road. And so that is where it becomes very interesting for Scott Frost, right? I don't think anybody thinks that they are going to beat Oklahoma. And if they do, I don't think that costs him his job just because of the timing of it. They'll have a bye week. Uh, October 1st is when the, 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 the buyout gets cut in half. But then it's kind of go time for Scott Frost. And what's crazy about the whole situation is if you look at the schedule, there is a scenario where Scott Frost can be 5-2 and two going into the second bye. Again, they have a second bye because they played in week zero. There's a scenario they could be 5-2. and two. North Dakota, Georgia Southern, Oklahoma – Then they open Big Ten play, reopen it because they played Northwestern on Saturday with Indiana at Rutgers at Purdue. Those are three very winnable games that they could take into a second bye. And oh, by the way, they also play Illinois and Minnesota at home coming out of the second bye, which means there's a scenario where they could be 7-2 and going into the final three weeks of the season where they play at Michigan, Wisconsin, and Iowa. The problem, of course, is a couple things. One it's Nebraska, and it's Nebraska under Scott Frost, and I don't know what the reason is to believe that they are going to win the games that they need to to keep keep Scott Frost's job. Again, I don't think anybody expects him to beat Oklahoma, but you got to beat Indiana at home on a day when your buyout gets cut in half. You have to beat Rutgers on the road, and you probably have to beat Purdue going into that second bye, and I guess just my simple question is, and by the way, Purdue is actually pretty good this year, but my simple question is, What have we seen from Scott Frost? What have we seen from Nebraska that makes us think that they are actually going to win the games that they need to? Especially, I should mention, by the way, after a day where you gave up 500 yards to a Northwestern offense that was terrible last year, is Northwestern that much better after one season, or is the defense bad? And then again, it gets into an interesting scenario where what is what is it that you need to see from Scott Frost for him to keep his job, not only in October, but by the end of the year? Is it seven and five? Is it eight and four? I certainly do think it isn't losses to Indiana. It isn't losses to Rutgers. It isn't even a loss to Purdue, which is pretty good. Illinois and Minnesota again. 
And I do think there's a very good scenario at this point that Scott Frost is out by the end of that second bye when they would play at Purdue. Probably four and three is right that cut line of does he keep his job, does he not? I just think it's a fascinating scenario to discuss and it's a fascinating scenario to consider when you look at Scott Frost's future. One final thought on Nebraska, because I, I do think, listen, I, I think we're overreactionary as a college football uh, community. I think it's what we do, as I just said, especially in week zero. Um, you know, there's only one game to focus on, so we are all going to throw arrows at Scott Frost today. What I would say, though, is I don't think, based on what I've seen, there's a reason to believe that he is going to keep his job beyond this year. So whether it is after a weird loss in October and he gets let go, whether it is after a loss to Purdue heading into that second bye and maybe they're three and four or four and three, or whether it is the end of the year, maybe you know, maybe he has a situation where he's built a little momentum, then gets destroyed by Michigan, gets destroyed by Wisconsin, gets destroyed by Iowa. The point is, I think we all have to kind of come to grips with the fact that Scott Frost is not going to be the head coach this this coming uh, next season. And I do think it kind of sets up an interesting conversation about Nebraska. I think part of the reason that Scott Frost kept his job this season is two things. One, he's a Nebraska alum and a Nebraska legend. And I do think everybody at Nebraska legitimately wants him to work at Nebraska. But I also think that last year, I don't think Nebraska wanted to go into a coaching search because last year they were competing with LSU and USC and Florida and Miami who were all looking for new head coaches last year. What I find interesting, though, is that I do think that that part of that is true, right? In the pecking order of college football jobs, Nebraska isn't what it once was. And so I do think there's this narrative that, well, you know, Nebraska, they're living in the 90s, they're never going to be what they were, and nobody's going to want that job. And I do think there's a couple interesting things that have changed in college football. I do think this job, if it opens, and I think we have to expect that it will at some point between now and December, I do think the job is probably a little bit better than people realize, and let me explain why. First of all, the expectations at Nebraska are not out of whack, okay? And I talk about this with various teams in college football. Like, I talk about it with Tennessee all the time. I think there's this notion that everybody in Tennessee thinks that it should be 1998 and they're winning national championships. Tennessee's like, no, we don't want to win. We just want to win, like, 10 games, maybe go to Atlanta, have some, like, real momentum in this program rather than restarting it over and over and over every two, two, three years, And I think it's the same with Nebraska. I don't think any Nebraska fan is stuck in the 90s anymore. I do think most Nebraska fans are like, can we be 8-4 consistently? Because I think we should be 8-4 consistently. Can we beat Purdue and Minnesota? Because that should be a baseline for what the expectations are in this program. And then, can every once in a while we go 10-2, maybe go 11-1, maybe go to the Big Ten Championship game? To me, I think that is what most Nebraska fans expect out of this program. They don't expect 13-0 every year, beat Florida by 40 points in the Fiesta Bowl like it's 1994 all over again. I think it was 95, actually, but whatever, you get the point. I think most fans are like, can we get to 8-4? Can we occasionally have the year where everything breaks right and we go 10-2 or 11-1? And to me, what I would say is, I do think they can have that. If Iowa can go 10-2 and two last year when the Big Ten West, if Wisconsin go, can go 10-2 and two occasionally 11-1, and one, why can't Nebraska? And what I also think is interesting about Nebraska is this, and what I think will be interesting about Nebraska to see is what kind of candidates they attract if and when the job opens. I think this job is better than people give it credit for, and I think it's better now 
than it even was a year or two ago because of some of the changing things in college football. Again, I think there's this, this, this narrative that if the Nebraska job opens, nobody's going to want it because it's impossible to recruit. They don't have any players like they do in Georgia and Florida and California and Texas. I do think that's true. But I do think there are some changing things in college football that make it more desirable. They talked about it on the broadcast on, uh, on Saturday. One, Nebraska, that fan base is going to take care of players in the NIL world. We all saw the DeColdis Crawford video. For people who don't know, there's a player named DeColdis Crawford on their team. He had a, 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 a NIL deal with a heating and cooling company that went crazy viral. And so what it says to me is this is maybe the most, I think Nebraska is up there as one of the most passionate fan bases in college football. Uh, they've sold out every home game since the 1960s. And when I look at Nebraska, in the NIL world, I think they are going to have more success than they did 10 years ago. And I think in the transfer portal world, they are going to have more success than they did 10, 12 years ago. Look at their roster. One of the reasons why I said they can have immediate success they have transfers that were really, really, really good in high school that maybe they couldn't get out of high school, but they got this year. Four-star wide receiver Trey Palmer looked awesome on Saturday. Came from LSU. Starting quarterback Casey Thompson came from Texas. Wide receiver Marcus Washington came from Texas. Uh, you know, they have a, a safety from Alabama or a corner from Alabama that they brought in through the transfer portal. And so one... They can get players through the portal that they were never able to get before or that they haven't been able to get for a while. And two, the NIL setup is pretty good at Nebraska. And so when I look at the future of Nebraska, I think this job is going to be more desirable than people think for that reason. And the other reason being, whether it's 2025, whether it's whatever, we're getting an expanded college football playoff soon. And so I think there's this notion of like, Nebraska fans want it to be 1994 and anything worse than 13-0 is unacceptable. That ain't the truth. The truth for Nebraska is if they can get to 10 and 2, they'd be happy. If they get to 11 and 1 over the moon, and I do think the question that I ask myself is if we expand the playoff, when we expand the playoff, and we go to 12 teams or 16 teams, can Nebraska be the third best? I'm not asking them to be Ohio State, but can they be the third best team in the Big 10 and make a college football playoff at 12 or 16 teams? I think that they can, and I think it's because of NIL and the portal. And I do think that's going to make this job more interesting when it opens up. Don't know when that's going to happen, but I do think the reality is, at this point, we have to accept. Scott Frost, if you're going to win some of these close games, it's got to start like right now, okay? But if it doesn't happen, I do think this job will be more desirable than people think because I do think with the NIL and with the portal, it's a situation where you can come in and in two or three years, why can't you be the third best team in the Big Ten? They might have been the third best team in the Big Ten last year. They just couldn't get over the hump in any of those close games. It's something to think about with Nebraska. Disappointing loss. I know Nebraska fans are frustrated. I kind of think if Scott Frost moves on, they're going to do well in the coaching search. All right, so what I want to do, I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to react to the rest of the week zero college football news. It is so good to have college football back, people. I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I uh, do want to switch gears and do want to continue the conversation on week zero outside of the big one on Saturday in Dublin. Nebraska and Northwestern because while there weren't a bunch of super marquee games or really any marquee games at all I do think there were two or three spots that I was kind of watching just to kind of see what was going on you know I was kind of lurking in the weeds like a tiger in the jungle just trying to see what was going on in the world of college football and there were two or three games that I was super intrigued by and I do want to talk about and I want to get into a couple different games. And, I, and before we even get into it, let me just be clear. Like, uh, this is the, 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 the quote from Jerry Maguire. I'm not going to do what you all think I'm going to do, which is just completely flip out and completely overreact to college football. But like I said, I, th- I thought there was three or four spots where there were th- some things that I wanted to see on Saturday that I do think are going to speak to what happens across college football over the course of this season. And so let's get into it. And I do want to start in maybe a place that some of you are surprised by. I obviously want to talk my UConn Huskies in a minute. But I want to start in Tallahassee, Florida, where the Florida State Seminoles hosted the Duquesne Dukes. And I'm not going to sit here and overanalyze, and Florida State did this, and it means that, and this is what it means, and Florida State's back, Florida State stinks, whatever. But this is a program that I do believe is kind of hitting an important inflection point under Mike Norvell. This is year three. He took over during... COVID in 20, you know, the, 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 the spring of 2020, the first year's lost, the second year they're behind schedule, but at some point, you do have to start showing signs of progress. Now, to his credit, the team got better over the course of the back half of last season, but it is worth noting that they did start 0-4, and more importantly, it's worth noting what I've talked about on this podcast before. Florida State, if you ask people, if you ask their administrators publicly, everyone will tell you that Mike Norvell has universal support. But remember, Florida State's most prominent alum is tearing up the FCS level of college football right now. His name is Deion Sanders, just won a bunch of games last year, got the number one recruit in America to come to Jackson State, to come to Jackson State to play for Deion Sanders, and obviously decommitted from Florida State. And so I do think the leash is a little bit shorter than Mike Norvell. And I do think this is the year where you have to show real progress. I know year one was COVID. I know year two was weird. But this is now year three. This is the transfer portal era. And you're out of excuses. I'm not saying you need to go 11-1. and one. But what I am saying is after going 5-7 and seven last year, again, to their credit, 
played much better down the stretch. You got to show some improvement. You got to get to seven and five, eight and four, beat the teams that you are supposed to beat. Nobody's saying that you got to beat Clemson. But those second-tier ACC teams, you're out of excuses for playing them and oh by for losing to them. And oh, by the way, week one, we're going to find out exactly what you're about because you play LSU in the Superdome a week from this past Saturday, two days ago as you guys listen to this show. So Florida State played Duquesne at home. And let me just tell you, I was actually legitimately impressed by Florida State. They went 47-7. to And more importantly, They did exactly what you want out of a team playing a moderately to bad FCS team. They literally just kicked the crap out of them and left no doubt. The final score in this one was 47-7 to that Florida State won. And I think most importantly, it's exactly what I said. It's not just the final score. It's that this is a game, I'll give you a quick story, but I, you know, not to brag, no big deal. I played high school football, okay? Wasn't very good, whatever. But I remember we were playing a a team, you know, early in my career, or late in my career, early in the season. And we were trying to figure out kind of who we are and what we're about and all this stuff. And I remember my high school coach, one of the assistant coaches saying, I already told my boss, if we don't win on Monday, I'm not coming in because I'm going to be so, because this team is so bad that if we don't physically kick the you-know-what out of them, I won't be able to show my face outside of my house. I will be that embarrassed. So outside of AT's awful high school football stories, um, it reminded me of this Florida State game. You're Florida State. This is year three. You've brought in a bunch of guys through the portal, and your biggest weakness over the last couple years has been the offensive line. Go out there and just physically beat the crap out of somebody and that's exactly what Florida State did. They went 47 to 7. They were up 26 nothing at halftime. They were up 40 to 7 after 3 quarters, but most importantly, they had 638 yards of total offense, 406 yards rushing, over 7 yards per carry with three different players rushing for over 100 yards. Now I know that might not mean much for next week against LSU. I know it might not mean that much for a couple weeks down the road when you play Clemson and you play Miami and you play some of the better teams in the ACC. But what I also don't want to do, and if you guys and girls have listened to this show over the years, and I know that you have, you know that I never, ever, ever discredit a team for just beating the you-know-what, beating the tar out of somebody that they're supposed to early in the season. Because I think you get a lot of that from some people in the media, and not only from the media, but but really from fans, right? Fans, oh, you know, I mean, come on, they're playing Duquesne. Of course they're supposed to win by this much. And I don't disagree that, you. yes, you are supposed to physically kick the crap out of people. But we see FCS teams pull off upsets all the time. We see FCS teams playing deep into the fourth quarter against good teams all the time. We see group of five teams playing against into the fourth quarter all the time. And so for me, I've never bought into this notion that if you dominate somebody, that you should get discredited for it because the opponent's bad. Go out there, kick butt, do what you're supposed to do. Credit to Florida State. That is exactly what they did in week zero. Now we get to see what it all means for LSU. They play LSU on Saturday. Um, Don't want to overreact. But again, I just like the mentality of Florida State. This is year three now. And keep in mind, by the way, Florida State lost to an FCS opponent last year. In year three, 
you're out of excuses. This is the game that you're supposed to win by 40. This is the game that you're supposed to physically dominate. And to Florida State's credit, they absolutely did. And I was really impressed with what I saw. Now we get to spend Wednesday and Friday talking about what it means for the LSU game on Sunday night. Remember, there is always a Sunday game on Labor Day weekend. This year, it is Florida State LSU. All right, let's keep things going uh, and talk about just some really quick other reactions from week zero in college football. And listen, you know where I'm going next. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about it, but my UConn Huskies did play on Saturday at Utah State, and they lost 31-20. to I think there's a lot of people that sit there and say, Torres, who cares about UConn football? And I get it. I'm not going to talk about UConn probably in week seven when they're playing nobody and Alabama's playing Texas A&M or USC's playing Utah or whatever. But there wasn't very much going on. And I actually want to go ahead and give my UConn Huskies credit. They lose 31-20 to at Utah State. And a lot of you are probably thinking, well, Utah State, who cares? What are they about? Well, Utah State, for people who do not know, They won 11 games last year. They beat two Pac-12 teams, Washington State and Oregon State in a bowl game, and they won the Mountain West. So I'm not sitting here saying they're Alabama, who ironically they play this week, but they're probably a legitimate, I I, I would guess probably top 25, top 30 team in college football. They're probably better than most of the middle of most of these power conferences. Like I would say Utah State's probably equivalent to a middle-tier ACC program or a middle-tier Big 12 program, UConn goes on the road, first game under head coach Jim Mora, friend of the Aratora Sports Podcast, Jim Mora, and they looked really good. They actually got up 14-0 in the first quarter. Coming out of the first quarter, they were up 14-0. And why it's important, their starting quarterback, a kid named Taquan Roberson, who transferred from Penn State, he got hurt on the second drive of the game And it's really unfortunate because it appears as though he will be out for the remainder of the season with an ACL injury. And so you lose your starting quarterback on the road down seven or up seven, nothing, but they get up 14, nothing. Their backup quarterback is a true freshman named Zion Turner. And I thought they actually played very, very, very hard. The defense was very competitive. Special teams were very good. By the way, you thought I was done telling high school football stories. Shout out to No Rulias. I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly. UConn's walk-on kicker set a state record 57-yard field goal for my high school, Hall High School in West Hartford, Connecticut, baby, uh, many years older than him. But I played at Hall. UConn's kicker was phenomenal. 240-plus yard kicks. And late in the game, I'll say this about UConn. Late in the game, UConn had a chance to win that game. 24-20 late, and it, or 24, uh, yeah, 24, uh, I'm trying to figure this out really quick on the fly here. It was 24-20. They get a stop, terrible, um, terrible pass interference call on, on third down, gives Utah State a new set of downs. Utah State ends up scoring. They win 31-20. to But when I look at how far this program has come, because it's funny, I was hosting Fox Sports Radio on Saturday night, and my co-host Jason Martin was making fun of me for talking about UConn. But I do think it's important for a couple reasons. First of all, this was a team, UConn, University of Connecticut, they ranked 115th nationally in total defense last year. And more importantly, when it came to scoring, scoring defense, when it came to the amount of points that they gave up per game last year. They ranked 123rd out of 130 FBS teams. They gave up 38.5 points per game a season ago. 
to hold Utah State at home with all the talent that they have coming back off the Mountain West Championship to 31 points. And again, this was a 24-20 game midway through the fourth quarter. It was a completely positive sign. The program, I believe, is totally heading in the right direction under Jim, Jim Mora. And as I've told you many times, it's, it's so crazy to me. But the portal doesn't just work for USC and LSU when there's a coaching change. Jim Mora came in, was very aggressive in the portal. As I said, their starting quarterback, who unfortunately appears to be out for the year, is from Penn State. They've got a, an offensive lineman from Alabama. They've got a defensive uh, line. They've got a linebacker, excuse me, from Kentucky. A couple other defensive players, Texas Tech. Uh, there's a, a, a safety, I believe, from Missouri. The point I'm trying to make: the talent upgrade is through the roof. And Jim Moore is a good coach. Like I, I know whatever happened at UCLA happened, but this guy won multiple nine, ten win seasons at UCLA. I think he's going to be really good at UConn, and I believe that UConn, you know, it's too late to get in an over-under bet. I think they're probably going to finish this year something like 4-8, and 3-9, and nine, and then I believe it's go time, and I believe that this program is in really good shape going forward. Wish UConn could have pulled off the upset, but I actually do have a ton of respect for how hard they played. It was funny because Jim Mora actually had a press conference on Sunday where he said, I don't want any congratulations for losing. We went there expecting to win. Love the attitude from Jim Mora. Really quickly, a couple other thoughts. You know, Vanderbilt went on the road. They won at Hawaii 63-10. to And I saw a lot of people, and it's, it's people I respect. It's nothing like I'm going to go after other media members. Um, but I, I saw some other people like, oh, you know, I think Vanderbilt's better than people think. I, I don't. I mean, I would just be honest. I don't. Um, you know, one of the worst offenses, one of the worst defenses in college football last year. Um, and by the way, you're going to a Hawaii team. Remember, Hawaii basically lost, like, 20 plus players to the portal. Todd Graham was their head coach. They had to fire him in mid January just to keep players from transferring. Basically, have they, they lose almost every player of significance, including their starting quarterback, their best defensive player, who's now transferred to UCLA. So I'm not sold that like this was some incredible effort by Vanderbilt. I actually think it was the exact opposite. I think Hawaii might be like legitimately one of the worst teams in college football this year. Don't want to discredit Vanderbilt, but I don't see much out of that 63-10 to win. They play Elon, but then the schedule gets much tougher. They play Wake Forest at home two weeks from now. Wake Forest, of course, was uh, the runner-up, the ACC. I believe it's the Atlantic Division. They won the ACC Atlantic last year, won 10-11 games, and I'm not sold that Vanderbilt, once they get to SEC play, where they play in the SEC East, they play Ole Miss, they play Georgia, or they play Ole Miss in Alabama, I'm not sold that they really make moves. Really, I think that's essentially it from uh, from week zero in college football. Really quickly, Illinois, listen, I know we got a lot of Arkansas fans that listen to this show. I know Brett Bielema didn't work at Arkansas. I think he's going to be good at, at Illinois. I don't think it, they're ever going to be 11-1, and one, win the West, play for a Big Ten championship. But they beat Illinois, or they beat Wyoming, excuse me, 38-6. to six, 477 yards of total offense, 260 yards rushing, 6.5 yards per carry. I do think they're going to be pretty good. I do think they're going to be pretty good. I do think they're going to be interesting. One of my favorite over-under win totals in the Big Ten was was Illinois over. I think they, their over-under is four and a half. Uh, and they play Indiana on Friday night, so a game that I'm very excited about. But I do think Illinois is going to be pretty, I don't want to say decent this year. I don't think they're going to beat Purdue. I don't think they're going to beat Wisconsin. I don't think they're going to beat Iowa. But I think it's a process with Brett Bielema. I do think they're going to be pretty good. 
And I think that's really it from week zero. Uh, UNLV, for people who did not see, uh, UNLV, they did uh, in their game, they played uh, They played Idaho State, won 52-21. We all know that Miami has the turnover chain, or they did prior to Mario Cristobal. Well, UNLV has the turnover slot machine, which was pretty cool. North Carolina took care of Florida A&M. This one was actually pretty close for a short time. North Carolina, their starting quarterback is Drake May, the brother of Luke May. And, um, and yeah, I think that's it. I think that's about all there is about week zero in college football. So big takeaways outside of Northwestern Nebraska. Really did think that Florida State did what was expected of them. Um, and then also uh, beyond that, uh, UConn I was very impressed by. Utah State, their opponent, will play Alabama this weekend. So I do want to take a quick break. I will come back, and when I come back, we're going to switch gears, and we're actually going to pseudo start to look ahead to week zero, or to week one, excuse me. Um, three quarterback decisions have been made across college football, Auburn, Texas A&M, and a very interesting deal over at Michigan. We're going to discuss all that next. Take a quick break. Be right back. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. And I do want to go ahead... Uh, we obviously just talked a ton of week zero, so I want to kind of put a bow on week zero and sort of look ahead to week one of the college football season. But I don't want to do it in the way that you think. I'm not going to sit here and start previewing Georgia, Oregon today. We got third, you know, Friday show, Wednesday show for that. I don't want to preview, you know, Florida, Utah, Notre Dame, Ohio State, whatever. We got later in the week for that. Instead, what I really want to kind of wrap the show on today is kind of just putting a bow on some stuff from fall camp, right? While week zero was going on, fall camp was still going on for a significant portion of college football. And on Saturday, we got some closure on some quarterback situations. Now, there's some that are still going on. Ole Miss, as, right, as of I record right now, has not named a starter. Same with LSU. But we got pseudo-closure at three places. Texas A&M has named a starter. Auburn has named a starter. And we're going to discuss them next. But I want to start at Michigan where our old buddy Jim Harbaugh just pulled a move that I don't know that I have ever seen at the highest levels of college football. Jim Harbaugh on Saturday announced that in week one, the starting quarterback would be last year's starter, the guy who led them to the college football playoff, Cade McNamara. And then in week two, Cade McNamara would sit on the bench, at least to start, as his backup, J.J. McCarthy, 
who is in his second year in the program, kind of a third year because he came in for the spring two years ago. He will get the start in week two. And then from there, Jim Harbaugh will name the permanent starter after week three. And so I want to talk about it. I want to discuss because this is one of the more fascinating things I have ever seen. And let me start by doing something that a lot of people don't like to do. I want to go ahead and defend Jim Harbaugh here for half a second. Because I do think there's kind of this perception that when you have two quarterbacks, you really kind of have none. And so I think the perception is if you can't name a quarterback, it's because neither has separated themselves in a good way, and both those guys probably stink. Well, Jim Harbaugh, first of all, released a statement on Saturday explaining the decision. He said both quarterbacks have played great, done everything they could have, and in every way to win the starting job. Coming out of camp, I just feel like we have two quarterbacks Caden McNamara and J.J. McCarthy, that we feel very confident can win. we can win a championship with either of those behind center. And so normally if a coach said that, after not naming a starter, I would call absolute shenanigans and tomfoolery. I do think there may be something to this, and I do think Michigan may be the rare place where you have two really qualified candidates and both cannot separate themselves in a positive way because they're both contributing really well. First of all, Kate McNamara, I mean, his resume does, in fact, speak for itself, right? I mean, I don't think at this point you can kind of question his resume. Guy won the Big Ten last year. Guy made the college football playoff last year. Obviously beat Ohio State for the first time in forever last year. And while his skills are not elite, he doesn't have a huge arm. He doesn't have elite speed. He's not crazy accurate, about 64% completion percentage last year. The guy just wins games. And the guy doesn't make mistakes, and he doesn't put you in positions where you're going to lose games, and it's more on the defense and the run game and his skill position guys to make plays. And so Cade McNamara has proven, like, I can win big games at the college level. Won at Penn State, beat Ohio State, beat Washington, beat, you know, whoever. Won at Wisconsin last year. So Cade McNamara has proven it. But if you follow college football, and even if you listen to this podcast, we talked about it a few times, there was always kind of this lingering thing in the background that his backup, J.J. McCarthy, was actually the guy that was probably the best quarterback on the roster, certainly the most talented, and that it was only a matter of time before this decision gets made. That d- The decision being that eventually you replace the guy that just won the Big Ten Championship with J.J. McCarthy. For people who do not follow, this is a guy, by the way, he, he made spot appearances here and there. He actually came in in the college football playoff against Georgia and played pretty well. But he's an elite athlete, elite speed, makes plays on the run, and he can simply do things that Cade McNamara can't. And so I really do believe that Jim Harbaugh had a tough decision, and I really will be fascinated to see a couple things. One, if he actually makes a decision after week two, because the schedule breaks pretty nicely where you get Colorado State to open the season, Hawaii, UConn, the Huskies, yes, they're back on the show, and then in week four you get Maryland, before uh, the schedule really beefs up, starting with Iowa at Iowa in week five to kind of really ramp up the schedule. So one, I'm just curious if the decision actually gets made after week two or if it extends. But what I would also say is I'm curious if one clearly establishes themselves once the games actually get played. Because there is the possibility, certainly, that both are super elite and it is impossible to decide between the two of them. But the more that I thought about it, I made a few phone calls over the weekend, something did strike me. There is a possibility that one is better and that Jim Harbaugh is doing the politically correct thing by giving both of them a shot. The first, you know, you look at it from the J.J. McCar- or from the Cade McNamara perspective, 
I, I could see the scenario where Cade McNamara is very much the better quarterback, and you're trying to keep J.J. McCarthy happy and in the program. I hate to say it, we're all fans of somebody, whether you're an Alabama fan, a Georgia fan, a UConn fan, a Texas fan, a Washington fan, a Colorado fan, whatever. This is the new world of college football that we live in, and as I think about this situation, I do think it's possible that, as I said, there, there could be a scenario where Cade McNamara is simply the better quarterback, one year the Big Ten, but you want to keep J.J. McCarthy in your program as long as you can. And if you name Cade McNamara the starter, there's a possibility that J.J. McCarthy hits the portal and leaves, and that's simply not something that you want if you're Jim Harbaugh. I think it's possible. I think you want to keep him around. I think with the schedule, the way that it is, you can potentially do that. And then, oh, by the way, maybe he does get better. Maybe he does win the job. Or obviously, in a worst-case scenario and something that nobody wishes for, there's always the possibility that an injury happens that you end up needing him. So I do think that's a possibility, and I do think by week two, week three, Cade McNamara could clearly establish he's the better guy and win the job. But what I would also say Something struck me as I thought about this whole situation over the last couple of days. What I was thinking was this, is I, I certainly think there's the possibility that Cade McNamara is simply the better quarterback, and this is a formality, just giving both a chance under the public eye. What I was also thinking, though, was sort of something I talked about with Stetson Bennett, the quarterback at Georgia. Remember I talked about, what if Stetson Bennett isn't good? What if you know you have somebody better? Remember, this was a guy, Stetson Bennett, that was questioned into the college football playoff last year and into the title game over whether he could win you a title or not. Well, what happens if he loses a game? What happens if he loses two games? Blah, 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 blah. This isn't a Georgia conversation. But I was also thinking about it from the Michigan perspective as well. As I told you, Cade McNamara, really talented, but limited upside, and he kind of is what he is. And my other thought with this possibility was, there is the possibility that Cade McNamara is simply better and they're trying to keep J.J. McCarthy around because of the transfer possibility. I think the exact opposite could be true as well, is that if you're Jim Harbaugh, you're coming off the best season in recent program history, certainly the best season since you've been there, but you know that the best quarterback on your roster was not playing last year. But you can't bench a guy that just started and won you a Big Ten championship that beat Ohio State and that got you to the college football playoff. So what you're going to do is just basically make this a public spectacle where Cade McNamara gets all the reps in week one, J.J. McCarthy gets all the reps in week two, and maybe there's a possibility that J.J. McCarthy is so good, the public then sees it, and then it takes the pressure off of Jim Harbaugh to actually bench the starter from the college football playoff run. I'm not saying that's what is happening. I have no like sourcing on that specific element of it. But I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that J.J. McCarthy is simply the better quarterback, but Jim Harbaugh feels like he owes it to the other quarterback that led him to a college football playoff, and he's going to start Cade McNamara in week one. Then the J.J. McCarthy show begins, and then from there, it becomes pretty obvious who the best quarterback is, and then he can go to the public and say, look, y'all saw it with your own two eyes. Y'all saw who the best quarterback was, and we're going to go ahead with J.J. McCarthy going forward. Like I said, absolutely fascinating to think about. And my last little thought is, I wouldn't be surprised, as I said, if this extends beyond week two. UConn at home in week three. You got to get ready for those Huskies. But then also Maryland in week four sets Michigan up to be 4-0 and going into Iowa the first week of October. Really quick, a couple other quarterback decisions got made. Uh, Texas A&M names Haynes King the starting quarterback. Haynes King, of course, was the starter, won the job this time last year over Zach Calzada. 
Unfortunately, he goes down literally the second game of the season early in that game, and we never got to see him, was out for the rest of the year with an ankle injury, does come back, and does reclaim this spot at Texas A&M. Ultimately, I don't know that I'm all that surprised, right? One thing I don't try to do on this show, as we've discussed many times, I don't claim to be some X's and O's expert, okay? But you talk to anybody in football, you listen to any of these broadcasts, any of these analysts that are around Texas A&M or the SEC, they tell you Jimbo Fisher's playbook is complicated, it's not easy to pick up, and so it's not surprising to me that a guy that is entering his third year in the program has a leg up on two guys that just got there in the spring. For people who do not know, Max Johnson, transfer from LSU, Connor Wegman, a true freshman, were in the running as well for the job. And so to me, this isn't all that surprising. Haynes King probably has the the best command of the offense. I'm not saying anybody wishes for injury, but sometimes not playing even allows you to have a better grasp of it, sitting back with a headset, with the coaching staff, watching the backup last year. So I'm not really surprised by this. I guess the only thing that I would say is it'll be interesting to see going forward because I could see the scenario next year at Texas A&M where it's exactly what I just talked about at Michigan. Haynes King is an elite athlete, like literally outside of Devin A-Chain, who's a world-class sprinter, their their star running back. Haynes King is like the second fastest guy on the team, like 4-3-40, you know, handheld time. And so what's interesting about him is, though, he hasn't proven that he can do it as a quarterback. And so I only bring it up because I could see the scenario where this time next year, Connor Wegman, the true freshman, is clearly in position to take the job. Haynes King has to go out and prove it, but Haynes King has been named the starter at Texas A&M. And then finally, Auburn. So Auburn kind of made a very similar decision, right? Auburn had two transfers come in this offseason. Ironically, one of them, Zach Calzada, I just mentioned, came from Texas A&M. Robbie Ashford, a backup from Oregon, who actually played very well in the spring game, transferred in as well. But it is TJ Finley, who won the job late last year, that won the job this year as well. Now, I'm not really a huge TJ Finley guy. I'll be blunt, you know, 54% completion percentage last year, six touchdowns, one interception. But what it says to me is kind of what it says about Texas A&M. I think we as fans get so enamored with the transfer portal stuff, and I include myself. I'm not sitting here saying that it's just fans and message boards and this and that. I, I think we as fans get enamored with all of these transfers And what you forget is a guy is showing up in spring, he's showing up in summer, and he sometimes is a year or two behind the guys that have already been there. And so you look at what's going on at, say, Ole Miss. Ole Miss is a perfect example. They bring in Jackson Dart, highly recruited player, ended up at USC, transfers to Ole Miss. But they had a guy who had been there, Luke Altmaier, who's been pretty good, who played in big games last year, and we're just handing the job to Jackson Dart. And I think it's kind of the same at Auburn, is everybody always wants what's next, But it's clear that T.J. Finley has the best grasp of the offense. Big kid, super athletic, tough, by all accounts a great leader. We'll see what happens with T.J. Finley. But to me, uh, not surprised by this one at all. This is where it had been trending. And uh, it appears as though this one is in the books. T.J. Finley will be your starting quarterback for Auburn in week one. And Auburn's an interesting deal, much like Michigan, where the schedule is very interesting early. They have some tough games early. But I think I've mentioned this on the show. First five games are all at home. Mercer this weekend, San Jose State in week two. Then the big one, Auburn hosting Penn State. 
Missouri, and then they play LSU the first week of October. So listen, if Brian Harson's going to keep his job, the schedule breaks about as nicely as possible because he does get his first five at home, even though two of those teams are pretty tough, Penn State and LSU. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Do think it is time for me to get out of here. Before we do, I want to remind everybody, make sure to subscribe. Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following me on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. If you have any questions for the show, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. If you have any questions for the show, I'll be back on Wednesday. And as I've said a few times, I think we have some pretty big announcements. Certainly, I know we're going to have at least two on Friday that I'm very excited to share with y'all. I keep saying y'all, okay? I'm sorry. To keep sharing with all of you. Um, but I, I'm very excited. We got at several big announcements this week. But also, I know for a fact, Friday we will have two, and I think we'll have a big one on Wednesday as well that I cannot wait to share with you. So thank you, everybody, for your support. Thank you for everything that you do for this show. And with that said, it is time for me to get out of here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I'll be back on Wednesday. Oh, by the way, I forgot to say, shout out to JJ Reddick, you F-head. I'll be back Friday, Wednesday. All new episode. All my days are confused. College football is here. I can't even keep my day straight. Week zeros of the books. Week one is coming. I'll be back on Wednesday. How's that sound? What an awful ending. New episode of Aaron Torres Sports Podcast Wednesday. Hope everybody has a great week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.